If you got your Bibles, go ahead, take them out. We're gonna be in 1 Corinthians chapter nine. 1 Corinthians chapter nine today, uh, beginning in verse 19. Some of you may have heard the story of Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a missionary many, many years ago. He's, I actually shared a missionary story last week as well, but uh, I think it's good for us to remember some of these missionary stories. People who have gone out, who have, who have given all of their life, their livelihood, their, their, their years to reaching people with the gospel. Hudson Taylor was a man who uh, lived in England, felt he was called at a young age in his early 20s to go and to reach China with the gospel. Now, today, I don't know if you know this, but China is the fastest growing and perhaps has become the largest church in the world. Um, and most of it has been under intense persecution uh, because the state in China does not really like churches worshiping someone else besides the state. And so there's been incredible persecution. Pastors have been thrown in jail. They've been killed. Leaders of churches have been thrown in jail. And the whole movement has been very, very, very underground, but also lay-led because a lot of leaders have been thrown in prison, and it's just growing. It's really a remarkable story. Well, a lot of that started with Hudson Taylor way back in the 1800s. Hudson Taylor, young British man, gets to China, and he sees a handful of missionaries that are also in China already, and, and one of the first things he notices is that the, the Chinese men and women really aren't listening to much of what these British preachers are saying. The British preachers are going out in the corner, and you know, they've got, they're dressed in the British garb, they're wearing their black, in those days it was a black kind of long suit coat that went down to their knees, and they'd stand there with their Bibles on the corner, and they'd be preaching the word of God. And, uh, and they noticed that they were having some doors opening, but in general, not much was taking place. Well, some time went by, and Hudson said, you know, one of the reasons that these Chinese folk are not really listening to these British missionaries is because they, they, there's, no, there's no relatability here. There's such foreign people to them. And so Hudson Taylor did something that none of the other missionaries had done yet. He decided that he was going to dress like the Chinese and assimilate himself into the Chinese culture. And so Hudson Taylor began to wear the Chinese clothing. He ditched the British coat that went down, like the, the proper coat, and he wore the Chinese clothing, and he grew his hair out into a long, what we would consider like a ponytail, which was the, the, the fashion at the time in China. He grew it into a long ponytail, and he shaved the front of his forehead, which was the fashion for the men at the time, essentially to look like and to assimilate into the people. Now, he wrote, and he wrote many times how uncomfortable he was with this at the time because all he knew was the clothes he knew, and to him, the clothing and the style of the people that were living in China at the time were foreign to him. But in order to reach them, he needed to be like them. So he shaved the front of his head, grew his hair out long. And after that moment, the great Chinese missionary movement began. And Hudson Taylor formed the China Inland Mission which to this day has reached millions and millions and millions of people for Jesus Christ. All because one man, not all because, but largely one man said, what's it gonna take to reach these people? Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work to, to identify with them, to look like them, to be in their life in such a way that they can hear what I have to say. Now if you're a Christian, we, you ought to be and we ought to be passionate about reaching people for Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, Hudson Taylor's story, it might sound bizarre, but it also shouldn't be that bizarre because there should be this desperate desire inside of us that the goodness of the gospel, how sweet Jesus has been to us, we wanna see him be that sweet to other people as well. And we wanna see people find Jesus Christ, meet them, and there should be this desperate desire to do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to reach our neighbors, 
with the gospel, to reach the people that God has placed around you with the gospel. We say very often this church, some of us are called to be missionaries, and we support missionaries all around the globe. We're raising up missionaries to send them off to some of the most unreached people groups in the entire world, some of those persecuted churches in the entire world. We're sending our people there. And yet also every Christian, even if you're not called to another nation, you're called to live missionally wherever you are. You can't get around that as a Christian. It's part of the heart of a Christian. Are you passionate about doing whatever it takes to reach those around you with the gospel? Let's remember where we are in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10 have been this uh, kind of little excursus. It's kind of a, a one little section in 1 Corinthians. We're going verse by verse through the whole book. And in chapter 8, we kicked off this conversation about a very foreign subject to us. It was about food that had been offered to idols. And if you remember what we learned in that chapter is that though it was very foreign to us, the principles of what Paul was teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 apply to like everyday life. Food offered to idols was something that the people in Corinth, who Paul's writing to, they faced that every day. Can I buy meat that had been offered to a pagan idol, now that I'm a Christian, I'm out of idolatry, can I buy that meat at the butcher? That was an everyday experience for them. They had to figure out, how do I eat? How do I buy my groceries? Is it appropriate? And Paul gave this principle to them in chapter 8. He said, when you're making ethical decision-making, about being ethical decisions, about being a Christian and where that conflicts with culture, the way you make those decisions needs to be driven by a desperate desire to see everyone else built up around you in Christ. And so in chapter eight, we said, look, here, here's how you do it. If you buying that meat is gonna hinder someone from growing in Jesus, then don't buy the meat. And then we started looking at our own life and we said, okay, what does that mean with the music I listen to? What does that mean with the movies I watch? What does that mean with the way I spend my money? What does that mean with the things I like to do with my time and the, and the shows I like to watch? How do, we, how do we take that principle and apply it to all these different lanes? Then last week, we specifically looked at how Paul uses his own life of how he manages money. Do you remember this? We talked about how we manage money under the same principle. The way Christians manage money is utterly different than the world. We're interested in what is gonna build up as many people around me to know Jesus. And that's what drives our decision-making when it comes to our finances. Now, Paul continues this today. We're not done with it. We're actually gonna continue the same theme all the way through the end of chapter 10. But today, he's gonna be looking at the extent to which Christians should apply these principles. Remember the principle. We have a desperate desire to build others up in Christ. Now, to what extent do we take that? How do we live that out? Here's the big idea today. This is what I want you to try to take away. A Christian heart is willing to do, here's the, here's the three words, remember this, whatever it takes. A Christian heart is willing to do whatever it takes, short of sin, to win others to Jesus Christ, okay? A Christian heart is willing to do whatever it takes, short of sin, to win others to Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23. Continuing the conversation from last week. For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a, as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. Can't you just picture Hudson Taylor right now? To the Chinese I'm trying to reach, I became as a Chinese man to reach those living in China. Verse 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Listen to this verse, verse 22. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessing. 
All right, there, there's, some, there's some important language in here. Let's start working through this. Paul opens up this discussion with this language of freedom and servitude. Look at it, verse 19. Though I am free from all, though I'm a freed man, I have made myself a servant. The term is doulos. Good Bible students, you know that term. It can also very easily be translated slave. Though I am a free man, I've made myself a slave to all in order that I might win more of them. Okay, that language is so heavily loaded in 1 Corinthians culture. We have a certain way that we read through that language today with our history as a country. We, we see it a particular way, we read a particular way, and we pick up on some of the nuances what Paul might have meant with that. Certainly, we can pick up some nuances with our ideas. But to the Corinthians reading this letter the first time, this was an everyday, they could see this with their eyes playing out all around them, okay? It's estimated that 15% of the Roman Empire were slaves, so, so on any given day, think of how many people you walk by on a day-to-day -day basis living in this world, right? 15% of the people you would have gone through were slaves. It had come from all over the empire, and they were slaves. Now, slavery in the Roman Empire looked a lot different than slavery in Europe in the 1600s, and America in the 1700s. However, it was slavery nonetheless, and there were a lot of hardships that people went through when they were slaves. In fact, in the Bible, we meet a number of folks who were slaves, who had become followers of Jesus, and they're held in high esteem. We know about Onesimus, right, in the book of Philemon. There's a whole book of Philemon written to a man who owned a slave and what to do with a runaway slave. At the end of Romans, you meet two people whose names are Tertius and Cordus, three and four. That's the terms. That's, that's how you numbered your slaves. One, two, three, four. They were numbered, and those were the names you gave them, Tertius and Cordus. At the end of Romans, Paul's thanking for all these men who, who, and, and women who were major contributors and, and servants within the church. He says, thank Tertius and Cordus. That's incredible language. You didn't see anything like that in first century in any other writings. You see it in the Bible. And Paul here comes into that language, and, and he says, look, I'm a freed man. This was part of Paul's story. He, he was born a free man. In fact, late, at one part of his own journey in the book of Acts, we see him saying, look, I'm a, I'm a Roman citizen. I was born as a Roman citizen. That gives me certain rights a Roman citizen. And others look at him and say, well, we paid a lot of money to become a Roman citizen. He was a free man. He had all the rights that came with that, the prestige that came with that. He was a highly educated young man. He was at the tippy top of the possibilities. And now he says, I associate myself with slavery. That language is so packed. To associate with slavery is, is to, is, is in, in the eyes of the culture at the time, is to have limited options, to be stuck, to, to, to not have the, uh, the finances you need to do the things you want to do with life, to not have the opportunities available, to not have the education that some would have. Paul steps into all that language in this one verse, and he says, though I'm free... I'm a free man. I choose slavery. So culturally weighted. I made myself a servant to all. Now, nobody chose slavery in those days, right? Some people, some people would choose slavery, which, which, and the term for it is bond servanthood. They would choose it if they had literally no other options. If they were going to die from starvation, they would opt into, okay, at least I can be a slave in someone's house and get food and get taken care of. That was some folks. But it was the word you did, that was what you tried to avoid. Paul says, I willingly choose this. Why? That I might win more of them. That I might win more of them. Paul was driven by one godly ambition, and that was to see as many people as possible come to know the God that he had come to know and love. 
And the, the language is interesting. When he says win, that I might win more of them, that's actually typically used in financial language. Now keep in mind, we, we, just, got, we just got done talk, Paul talking about finances. And now he basically says, in order that I might have the best possible investment portfolio. That's the language here, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm structuring my life to get the most dividends back in my life possible. This is the, the, the most amount of gains I can win in my life is if I, I choose servitude to people in order that I might get the most amount of investment returns. Do you see how Paul just thought differently? There's something that got in Paul, the Apostle Paul, that he was driven by different motivations. And it's a check on our own spirit. We, you know, some of you might have investment strategies. You're looking out, and, and the question we should be asking ourselves is when we think about how we're investing our time and our resources, what's our primary ambition? That's exactly what the, ta- the, test, the text is asking us. What are we mostly driven by? And he gives us three examples. Ooh, these are good. Three examples of how he's done this. Number one, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. And then he clarifies, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. That's one group of people. Those under the law were the practicing Jews of the time. Now, let's just make sure we clarify. I remember when I was first a Christian and I came into a church and they were talking about Jews in the church. And I'm like, I'm not in a synagogue. I have no idea why we're talking about Jews in the church. So let me make sure I bring some clarity here. Christianity was birthed out of Judaism. In fact, Christians would call themselves true Israel. That's the language that the New Testament uses of us, is that we're living in the fulfillment of all the promises of God to the Jews of the Old Testament, all of them pointed towards the Messiah. And Christians say, Jesus is the Messiah. And so Paul now is looking back. He was a Jew. He was trained in Judaism. And he's believed that Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets from the Old Testament, the fulfillment of Judaism. And he's looking back at them, and he's, and he's desperate to win his brothers who were Jews, ethnic Israel, to win them to faith in Jesus Christ. And so how is he going to do this? Now he's a Christian. He's not underneath the Mosaic law the way they were in the Old Testament. He's not underneath the ceremonial law anymore. The ceremonies have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He doesn't have to do those same things anymore. But how is he going to associate with them? He, he makes sure he clarifies. He says, though I myself not being under the law. So he clarifies, I'm not going to do anything that would be sinful. I'm not going to sacrifice more bulls on an altar or more goats. That would be sinful. That would be rejection of Jesus Christ, the final sacrifice once and for all. So I'm not going to do that, yet I place myself under the law. Well, Scholars have asked this question a lot, and there's a handful of ways to interpret it. I think the best way to interpret it is actually quite fascinating. There was a Jewish tradition in rabbinic Mishnaic language back in the day that said, uh, if, the, the, the quote reads this, if a brother seems vile to thee, when he is scourged, he is your brother. Let me translate that, that for you. If you're a Jew and another Jewish man or or, or woman, particularly men in this case usually, but if another Jewish man does something that makes him vile in your sight, if you whip him, you've restored the relationship. You now have to consider him a brother again because he's paid what was due to you. Okay. Paul was preaching to the Jews and was very often vile in their sight. Five times he chose to go underneath the whip. He got 39 lashes from the Jewish Sanhedrin five separate times. We read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. He says, five times I received the hand, at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Five separate times he received a scourging. Did he have to do that? 
No. Why did he choose to do that? Because he was desperate to reach the Jews that he loved, that he was living around with the gospel. It makes me ask, what am I willing to sacrifice to win others to faith in Jesus? This man was free. He wasn't under the ceremonial law anymore. In fact, those laws you won't even find in the Old Testament. He was never even under those laws. Those are extra-biblical laws. They were Mishnaic tradition. He willingly places himself underneath, not sinfully, but underneath their rules in order to keep a door open to the point of receiving 39 whippings. Five of them, 39 times. 39 39 times, five times. (laughs) What are you willing to do? Now, I, I, can't, I can't actually, I, I want to be a little careful here because on one sense, I, I want to make sure I don't push us into this, this space of like self-degradation and, and, and you know, self-flagellation, like hurting ourselves. At the same time, we have to look at Paul's life and the ambition he had to reach those who didn't know Jesus with the gospel. And we have to ask, is there even a hint of this in our life? Even a hint are we willing to, to give a night a week for a meal with somebody? I mean, it's p- pretty easy stuff here. Number two, he says, uh, segment, verse 22, no, 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Now who's he talking to? He's talking to all the non-Jews, the Gentiles. That's the term often used. Now how did he try to reach those who were not under the law. Well, he lived among them. Keep in mind, this is a a Jewish man of Jewish descent. He excelled in all Judaism. And here he is living in in first century Corinth, and he didn't take a paycheck, so he worked as a tent maker. You know this? He, he, he sold leather tents to people. And he worked in the towns. And the way the city was structured in those days, the first floor was stores. And then the, the second, third, and fourth floor were apartment buildings where people lived. And he'd be on the first floor meeting with all the people that were coming by, making friends with them as they came by, having them to his apartment for a meal. He lived among them. This would have been totally foreign to him when he was a Jew, but he completely changed his perspective. He had meals with them. He went on walks with them. He ingrained his life into theirs. Why? For the sake of, of helping them to find their greatest purpose in life. For the, help of, for the sake of helping them to meet Jesus. He believed in the sovereignty of God that every interaction he had, every sale of a tent he made, was a divine encounter with someone that if they didn't know Jesus, he wanted to build himself into their life so that they could, Lord willing, come to know Christ through him. There's an intentionality there with his business. This one's amazing. Verse 22. To the weak, I became weak. Then I might win the weak. Notice the language here. In the first two, he says, to the Jew, I became as a Jew. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. That's what he says here. He says, to the weak, he doesn't say, I became as one who is weak. What does he say? I became weak. And notice this, it's not clarified. The, other, the first two he clarifies, I do everything short of sin. That's the, the little parentheses in there in both those first two. I do everything I can short of sin. I follow the law of God. To the weak, no parentheses. 
I become weak. Well, how did he become weak? Well, he, he refused to take a salary. We know that from last week. Secondly, he, uh, he took the job of a tradesman as a tent maker, which was a, a lowly position in society. People would not have looked very highly on him at the time. He, uh, he identified as a slave. He used that language about himself. I, I, I tried to make you see this, but, but if, if this letter had gotten in the wrong hands when this was being circulated around the church, they would have read it and they would have, they, they would have thrown it away. Who is this guy? We're not gonna listen to a slave tell us about moral moral things. He identified as a slave. He willingly got beaten for the sake of the gospel. Who gets beaten? It's those who are the misfits, those who don't fit in, those who are the weak of society. Paul physically became weak. Then he says, verse 22, I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Now now this, this just stretches our imagination here. All things to all people. Paul had this desperate desire inside of him to reach everyone around him with the gospel and he was willing to do whatever it takes. And I have to ask us today, is that inside of us? Are we willing to do whatever it takes? Now, some of you, let me, let me say this. Whenever I preach on evangelism, sometimes I feel like I'm preaching a message that, that's very easy to go in one ear and out the other because it can feel so distant from our, our, our regular lives. And I recognize that. And I want to speak into that for a moment. Some of you might be saying something like this. You might be saying, Pastor Rafe, I hear you. And I've been around church long enough that I know evangelism is something important Christians should care about. I've been around the church long enough that I know that there's, a, there's some folks that are doing that work and there's a part of me that would love to be a part of that. But to be honest with you, Rafe, right now, I'm just trying to keep my head above water. I'm trying to pay my bills. I'm trying to be there for my parents whose health is failing. I'm trying to be there for my kids who need me because they're going through some hard stuff. I'm trying to navigate school systems in Chicago. I, I'm, just, I'm just trying to put food on the table. And I'm glad that we're getting sermons on evangelism but honestly, I just, I, I, don't, I don't have that in me. I can't right now, okay? Now, there's two reasons we might be having uh, that kind of language in our heart right now. And, and I've had that language in my heart over the years. There's two reasons. One of them is a very good and godly reason, and I want to use it as encouragement. One of them is a, a worrisome reason, and I want to use it to stir you up. To, to deeper works of God. First, let me work on the encouragement side. I believe that, that in our inadequacy is where the power of the gospel is most easily seen. Sometimes I think that folks come into our church, I know this because I have these conversations with folks, and they come in, and they actually come into a room like this, and they look around, and they see everybody, and everybody looks so put together. I've got my collared shirt on. Everyone looks really good, and they're coming in from whatever their experience has been out in the world, and they come into a room like this, and they immediately feel, I do not belong in this room. I've had those conversations. We've shared those testimonies and baptized those people in this room of those who said that the first time they came in. I just don't belong. Why? What they're doing is they're looking around and they're looking at a group of people who come off as if they have life all together. We've got this figured out, right? And then they look in and they say, I don't. I'm pretty messed up. I'm broken. And then they take one step in and oftentimes they'll leave before the sermon's over. And, and this is what the... When the church realizes that our job is not to have our act together, but is actually to, 
to, by the grace of the gospel, to allow God to be revealing our inadequacies, revealing our weakness, because in our weakness, in that place where we say, I literally, I can't, I, I got so much going on, I wanna be a part of it, but I'm just not, I, I don't have what it takes to do that. In that space, the power of Jesus begins to work through you so powerfully. There's a wonderful little book called The Way of the Dragon and the Way of the Lamb, written years ago. I've come back to that book so many times, and it contrasts the ways the American church has gotten this exact thing wrong. The American church has been built on power. It's been built on charisma. It's been built on personality. It's been built on hoorah, go take the, go take the hill. And, and there's something about go take the hill. I think I said hoorah after the prayer meeting today. I think that's what I said. I said hoorah, right? Like there's something good about, yes, Paul's got that language. In fact, he'll use that language by the time this is over. But when you build a church and you've got, all, you've got enough money, you've got all the right leadership, you've got all the right structures, now you're muscled up, you're ready to go. You missed it. From the, from the ground up, you missed it. That's, that is not how Jesus built his church. That's not it. it. That's the way of the dragon. That's the way of the world. And the way the dragon, the way that old serpent works is he sneaks into churches and he says, look, if you just had a li- if, you, if you had more money, if you had the right investors, if you had, and suddenly you're off of what Jesus has called you to. Look at, and, and then we write this, the way of the dragon, the way of the lamb. The way of the lamb is this. In the Christian life and in ministry, this is from that book, weakness is the way. The way of weakness, as I understand it, has two basic aspects. One is that the watching world sees you as weak in the sense of being limited and inadequate. The first one is the watching world sees you as weak in the sense of being limited and inadequate. The second aspect is that you yourself are very conscious of being limited and inadequate. In that respect, we are all to walk in Paul's footsteps, knowing God's strength in the midst of our human weakness. I think sometimes on our, on our very best days, we understand the first one, that as a church, we want the world not to see our boasting and our pride. We want them to see our humility, but I'm not sure if we really believe it yet. And, and that's, that's where it really kicks in, when you actually see yourself as inadequate, And can I tell you, look, this frees you from so much. The desire to be an impressive Christian will cripple you. You will burn out on Christianity, and we're watching it all across. It's this remarkably crippling prospect. I remember years ago, there was a pastor at Park, uh, Jason Helveston. I'll call him by name, Jason Helveston. He's one of the best preachers I've ever seen. This guy could preach like none other. He still can. He's a good friend of mine. I love Jason. Good guy. And he just had a way of preaching. He'd come at texts from an angle, and I'd look at the text, and I'd be like, how you got that out of that? I don't know. And I remember being a young, a young preacher trying desperately to be as impressive as Jason. Can I tell you how exhausting that was? Every week, I'd be, I'd, I was like, how do I live up to what he's doing? I was, I was exhausted. Five or six of those weeks in a row, I just couldn't do it. And then the Lord met me, and he said very clearly, I haven't called you to be Jason, I've called you to be Rafe. And I made you Rafe, and I want you to be Rafe. And, and that's, now that's a pastor's version of this. That happens in a thousand ways in the church. We look at the particular giftings, the particular strengths, the particular personalities, the particular wirings, the particular networks of other people in the room, and we get this sense that we're not impressive enough, and then we try to live into other people's shoes and what we're doing is we're just, we're hindering the free flow of the gospel taking place through you. God has made you a very particular way. And your job is not to, to try to impress others with how strong you are, 
how, how, many, how many hours you've done X, Y, Z, how many things you've accomplished for Jesus, but is actually in your inadequacy to allow the gospel to work through you. I was in a um, meeting a while ago. We were, we were looking to hire uh, leaders for the church. And, uh, and we, we, were, we were talking to a group of folks who, this is you know, consultants who, who do this regularly. And we were asking, like, what, what are the things you're looking for? <laughs> and the consultants oftentimes, you know, they'll put their list. Oh, we want this type of gift set, this type of leadership skills, this type of X, Y, Z. And I can't remember who it was who was in the room but it was someone who, I th- if I'm correct, I for- forgive me if I'm wrong, I believe it was someone from the Chinese church who was there. And they said, what we're looking for is how many times they've been thrown in jail for the sake of the gospel. <laughs> totally different resumes. You see how you get it wrong? What are we looking for? Personality, charisma, leadership training. How many times have they been thrown in jail for the gospel? How much are they willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus? What do their needs look like in prayer? We have been sold a package of goods. And, and, and this text is trying to drag us out of that into a different resume, into a different way of moving forward. I do, all, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Pa- Paul is connecting this way of weakness to the gospel. I became weak that I might reach the weak. Why is he saying language like that? This is exactly what Christ has done. I mean, Paul is not the exemplar of becoming weak to reach the weak. Jesus is the exemplar. Jesus stepped into human flesh. Literally, he, be- he became a bloody one. That- that's what it means for him to incarnate. He, he took on flesh. He-, he-, he did what he didn't have to do. He stepped out of his place as his divine son of God, and he took on flesh in order to suffer, in order to reach those who were far from him. That's you and I. In order to reach those who were gonna suffer in eternity apart in hell from God. In order to reach us, he he took on flesh, he suffered on the cross and poured his blood out as an offering for sin, that all who would receive him by faith would have their sin forgiven. And if you're a Christian, that's your story. Before it's anything else, if you're a Christian, your story is Jesus went to the cross and poured his blood out for me, that I could have all my sin forgiven, and now my, my, my eternity is set in Christ forever. It's no longer the same. And not only is my eternity set, but my here and now is set as well. I can't be the same. If that's what Jesus did for me, how much more can I do something like that for others? Your life has to be different. Now, some people hear the language and they say, I can't, I'm inadequate, I can't do that. And to that I say, amen, you are inadequate. That's, that's the seed language of being used by God. And can I encourage you, if you're in this room right now and you're looking at all of life's thrown at you and you're thinking, how can I, how can I do whatever it takes to reach my neighbor with everything I have going on? You are primed, you are ready. You have everything you need in that weak spot. And what I would encourage you to do is this. Open up your heart and open up your home to the possibility that the people that God's already placed in your life are the exact people God wants you to reach with the gospel. It's as simple as that. There's nothing crazy about this. God already has you in life with people. They're all around you. It's your barista. It's, it's, your, it's your Uber driver. It's your neighbor. God has you, and, and, and in God's genius, he's sovereignly orchestrating you in all the places you are in your weakness so that his power can be seen through your weakness. You're in a good spot. Now, others, others need to have a little fire put in them today because I think some folks, they're not saying I'm inadequate. They're in the room saying, I don't care about evangelism at all. 
And that's a problem. Because, here's why, what Paul says next. Let's listen to him. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is my favorite verses, and I wish I had a whole sermon to just give, and I got a few minutes here. I want to work through this. What is Paul communicating here? First of all, it's Corinth. Corinth was famous for the Isthmus Games, which is basically a, a smaller Olympic Games that took place. The, they trained for the entire year round. There were athletes all over Corinth. This was imagery that they knew. They knew what it was like for a boxer to beat the air. They knew what it was like for an athlete to be training and to only be putting in half their heart into their training and know that they weren't going to get anywhere in the Games. They just knew. They saw the guys running around saying, you're not putting in enough as that guy's putting in. And they knew the guys who were really training to win. Now, Paul applies that image. That's imagery we're all familiar with as well. And he applies it to what it means to be intentional about reaching those who are around him with the gospel. He says, I don't box as one beat in the air. I don't run aimlessly. There is a way to go about being a Christian, which is running aimlessly. And Paul's language is interesting here. He says, I discipline my body. I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, let's make sure we work that really carefully. The language of being disqualified is, uh, the other term that can be used for that is counterfeit. I don't want to be a counterfeit. Let's work this theologically. What I think he is saying here is, I think he's saying being disqualified from the role of an apostle. And I'll explain why. I don't think it's possible if you have truly, authentically believed in Jesus Christ, even if you have a mustard seed of faith, that that faith will save you. I believe that, there, that a mustard seed of faith in the, in the words of Jesus Christ, um, that Jesus Christ took your debt on the cross and he paid it once for all. I believe that that and that alone will save you. You are not saved if you believe in Jesus plus then evangelizing really effectively. That is not what saves you. It is purely the work of the grace of the gospel firmly working in your life. What that means is that I think there's a lot of folks who are gonna get their whole life and they will, they will never experience the great beauty and blessing of what it means to allow the gospel to work through their life in such a way that they're desperate to win others with the grace of the gospel. And they're gonna miss out on a whole lot of fruit in this life and they're gonna squeak through into heaven by the grace of God. Praise God for that. It is totally up to Jesus what he's done on the cross about our salvation. Paul here is talking about his apostleship and the role he was assigned. He says, I don't wanna be found a counterfeit apostle. And I don't want to be disqualified from this particular role God's given me. He says, and if I run aimlessly, if I just go through the motions, then God can dry that up as quick as, you know, as quick as the sun rises. He can take that away from me immediately. God's doing something in this church. I'm just letting you know. Right now, uh, an article got sent to me by one of our deacons this week. I read a few news articles on it. There's a little revival happening at Asbury Seminary right now. They started a worship prayer gathering on Wednesday evening. They haven't stopped. <laughs> the students haven't gone to class. Now, I don't know if that's sin or not, but they're not going to class. They're staying for worship. People are busting in from across the country. This country is due for revival. I don't know if you know that. Wednesday, no, Friday, I got the pleasure of leading a young man to faith in Jesus Christ on the streets of Chicago. I'm, it, it's, they're due we are due. It's happened here before. 
under the work of D.L. Moody. It's happened in this country twice before during the Great Awakenings. And usually seasons that precede great revivals look a lot like ours that we're in right now. Godlessness. Satan worship at the Grammys. Let's just be honest. You saw it? Did you see it? Sam Smith worships Satan at the Grammys. We shouldn't be surprised. It's as clear as day. It is what it is. Ripe for revival. This is just what it is. And if we're wise, we're going to have eyes that are open. And let me tell you what eyes I see. I see this church has prayed every day, twice a day, for a year and a half. Seeds of revival. That's the kind of thing that caused the wall to fall down. The communist wall to fall down. Do you know that? When the wall fell down during the, you know, during, the, during the whole thing, when that wall fell down, the reason it fell down, yes, there were political things that were taking place. There were prayer meetings that were taking place daily for nearly a year on the spot leading up to when the communist wall fell down. That's incredible. It was a prayer revival that brought the wall down. For a year and a half, this church had been praying. Uh, citywide church movements, led by, largely by Dr. Feuder, but by many other church uh, leaders in the city, have been taking place for years now. Seeds of prayer. We had 30 people praying this morning in the hallway over there. The seeds of revival are brewing. They're stirring. It's everywhere. You can't run away from it. If you walk into this place, you're going to be a part of it. It's just what's happening. And I'm letting you know it's going to happen. And I'm inviting you into it. Now, you can do one of two things with that. You can do one of two things. You can sit back and you say, you can say well, someone else I'm sure will be a part of it. And, and I'm going to read this text to us again. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives a prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Do you want a perishable wreath or an imperishable one? I want the imperishable one. I do not run aimlessly. I don't beat a box as one beating the air. I'm not just going to go around and play church. That's what you should be saying when you read this text. I don't just want to show up on a Sunday and then leave, say I I had my fill, I'm good to go. See, the the great mistake we make with all of this is we've so individualized the gospel that we think what it means to be a Christian is to come to church and then leave. And Paul obliterates individualistic Christianity by saying, no, that's not even Christianity. That's normal Christianity. Normal, not radical Christianity. Normal Christianity is Jesus gets a hold of your heart. He gives you salvation. And then what he plants in you is a desperate desire to reach others for the sake of the gospel. That's, what, that's normal. And, and if there's no seed in you, if there's no fire burning at all, if it's just, if even after hearing this sermon, if you, if you leave and you just go, not even a flicker, you didn't hear the gospel the right way because it's not about you. The gospel is about our king, Jesus, and the kingdom he's building. And he came on a radical rescue mission to save you and his church. And he called you an ambassador for Christ. And he's anointed you with spiritual gifts to do just that work. And we can grieve the spirit all day long and miss out on all the, all the fruit, or we can start working and laboring as a church that's expecting revival because the seeds are already brewing. But this passage teaches we ought to be willing to do whatever it takes whatever it takes to reach those around us with the gospel. Pray with me. Father, we love you and we worship you and we want this heart. We want it desperately, Lord. Build this in me first and foremost. God, I repent 
of a lack of zeal for the things of God. I repent of sometimes God being so focused on what you're doing in my own life and the stuff I gotta work through that I miss the bigger picture. And God, we're human. We bring to you our, our flaws, our weaknesses, our inability to see what you're up to and inability to feel the pain of others and what they're going through because we're so distracted with ourselves. And God, we, we ask, Jesus, that you form something new in us. God, we wanna be a part of what you're up to. We do. God, form in us a zeal today. May the fire that's burning in Asbury burn here. I pray in Jesus' name for that. May it, may it stir us up here, Lord. Something remarkable. In Christ's name, amen.